This is Two Girls, One Mike, the show that talks about the holes and plot holes of your favorite porn. Welcome to Two Girls, One Mike, the show where having friends with benefits mean that your friends actually are willing to listen to your podcast. I'm your co-host, <laughs> Alice Vaughn, and with me, I have my gorgeous guest co-host, Natalia Reagan. Well, hello. Natalia. <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing today? Oh, you know, hanging on in there. And uh, yeah, I feel like asking somebody to listen to your podcast is akin to asking someone to read your long-awaited screenplay. It's a daunting task, but it, it, it says so much. It's, you know, that's like a next step in a relationship is if they listen to your podcast. It really is. I mean, I have some close friends that, you know... I really don't expect them to listen. And when they do, I, I feel like I should apologize. I think in some cultures, it means you're married. So you, you just be careful there. You know, you might have to offer their dowry, 50 goats. I don't know what you're into. I mean, I don't think I'm worth that much. Maybe oh, a camel. I'd, I'd give you so, I, mm, between 50 and 75 goats, Alice. I think that you definitely, it would behoof me <laughs> to give you that many goats. You know, we do have an expert, maybe not on goats or trading of goats. I don't know. I mean, he could be an expert Maybe. on this. I hope so. I mean, I would be fascinated if he knew this. By the way, if you are an expert on dowries, contact us. Email info at twogirlswithmike.com. But with us, we actually have someone mm -hmm. a little bit more prestigious. Uh, we have Dr. Justin LeMiller. Did I pronounce that? Yep, close enough. Lay Miller. Oh, Lay Miller. Okay, I'll get it by the end of the episode. <laughs> okay, we have Dr. Justin Lay Miller. He's an American social psychologist and author. He's a research fellow at the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University, and he's written a couple books, Natalia. I know. I'm very impressed by these books, too. I have so many questions. Yeah, I mean, already the title itself, uh, one of the books is called Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Could Help You Improve Your Sex Life and the Psychology of Human Sexuality. Okay, so I already love the title, Tell Me What You Want, because it's very straightforward, very to the point. Uh, <laughs> and it's also a throwback to a Spice Girls song. So what mm -hmm. more could you want? What I really, really want <laughs> is you to pick up my dry cleaning, do my taxes, and get me off 10 times. <laughs> <laughs> Best personal assistant ever. <laughs> Were you a Spice Girls fan? Was this, uh, when you heard that song, did that kind of spark some sort of, uh, I don't know, what do you really want? Yes, when I first heard the song in 1996 in high school, it laid the seeds for me to grow this book on sexual fantasies. Um, no, actually, <laughs> it had nothing to do with that. I did enjoy the Spice Girls for some time. In fact, my first job was actually as a film critic for the local newspaper in my hometown of Canton, Ohio. And one of the movies that I reviewed was Spice World. Uh, so I do have this intimate connection to the Spice Girls in that way, but they don't really have much to do with the book. Do you have a favorite? A favorite Spice Girl? Yes. <laughs> I like them all. Don't make me choose. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> They're like children. I mean, we always have a favorite. We just never admit it. <laughs> Sophie's Choice. <laughs> I mean, that was Sophie's Choice. That was her favorite Spice Girl, right? <laughs> if only... But man, I just, I want to hear all about how you got to this. I mean, because I, I was doing some, uh, you know, internet stalking, like one does, of podcast guests or, or, or new partners. And uh, I found that you went to a Catholic college, right? 
I did. Uh, I actually went to Catholic school for a bit of time while I was growing up. So through middle school uh, in elementary school, I was, I was in a Catholic school and then I went to a Catholic college. I got my master's at another Catholic university. And it's interesting that my career now is, a, is as a sex researcher because I really didn't have any formal education in this area. <laughs> uh, you know, it was... No, 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 no. You're a Catholic schoolboy. Yes. It's true what they say. <laughs> it's all informal, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just had my fifth grade class where they separated the boys and girls and um, told us each very different things. And at the what end, what did they tell the boys? I don't know. I just remember that when I went into class the day we were having sex education, we only had one day for it. Uh, <laughs> I, re- I remember pulling out my notebook and writing sex education really big at the top of the paper. And I took literally no notes because I got nothing out of it. So it's just funny that I sort of grew up in this environment where we didn't talk about sex at home. I didn't get any formal sex education. And it wasn't until I was working on my PhD and I was studying social psychology and specifically studying romantic relationships. And I got assigned to be a teaching assistant for a human sexuality course. And that was totally new to me. And I learned more in that one semester as a teaching assistant than I had learned through my entire life up until that point. And that's what really opened my eyes to this whole world of sex research and education and how little I knew and how little everybody else knows and how many scientific questions remain to be answered in this area. Absolutely. By the way, I feel like I hadn't heard of the Kinsey Institute until I saw your bio. So, I mean, Alfred Kinsey is famous as a sexologist, but what does the Kinsey Institute teach per se? Yeah, so the Kinsey Institute has been around for quite some time. Alfred Kinsey was one of the most famous researchers in the history of sexology. Uh, He conducted these groundbreaking studies in the 1940s and 50s where he traversed the United States and did these extensive interviews with people about their sex lives and really opened people's eyes up to what was really happening in people's bedrooms. And they founded this institute in his name at Indiana University. And in the last half century or so, they have continued to really be the world's leader when it comes to putting out sex research. Uh, The Institute doesn't do a whole lot in the way of offering, say, courses and degrees. Like you can't necessarily, say, get a degree through the Kinsey Institute. You can do like a sexology minor through them. So most of what they do is research-based. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I always, I mean, I know the Kinsey scale is, of course, very popular with just sort of understanding, you know, where you kind of lie in in terms of your sexuality and things of that sort. And I mean, is that something that you think now, I mean, obviously, I I think you and I are about roughly the same age. And I feel like in the past two decades, there's just been this opening up and this sort of understanding and acceptance of the fact that sexuality is, because I'm an anthropologist, so I've taken a lot of anthropology of sex classes, but that sexuality is a spectrum, just like gender is a spectrum. I mean, is that something that has influenced your work quite a bit? Because I feel like it could. (laughs) Yeah, certainly it has. And I think it's really interesting, you know, looking at as I was growing up and as a young adult, we tended to think of sexuality as falling into a couple of very narrow boxes and categories. You were either gay, straight, or bisexual, but most people didn't believe you if you said you were bisexual. They said Mm -hmm. that really meant you were secretly gay, right? So it was really this binary view of, of sexuality. And Alfred Kinsey was really onto something when he conceptualized sexuality as the spectrum and 
there are varying degrees of heterosexuality and homosexuality and bisexuality, and we don't fit into these neat little boxes. So that has very much been an important influence on the work that I do, because I, I definitely do see sexuality as falling on this wide spectrum. And there is so much diversity in human sexual interest and behavior. And that's one of the things that I try to catalog in the work that I do, especially the research I do on sexual fantasies. That's great. Yeah, no, I remember being a kid and, and realizing I liked boys, but then at a certain point I realized, oh, oh, I like girls too. And I thought I had to be gay because I thought it, I, I believed in this binary opposition that you were either straight or gay. I did not even know at that point at age, whatever, nine or 10, that there was a bi category, which I mean, at this point, I think it's more pan. I just, you're cool. You're cool. But I remember my mom, I was watching George Michael, uh, the freedom video, and I was dancing to it. And she walked in and she's like, and I was saying how hot he was. And she said, you know, that George Michael is a bisexual, which, you know, is funny for two reasons. One, I'm pretty sure George Michael didn't necessarily identify as bi, but maybe at that time. Um, and why did my mom know this? But also I think that kind of blew my mind, this idea that there wasn't necessarily these boxes that we neatly fit in. There has to be a name for young girls who continue to fall in love with either bi or gay men who are unavailable to them. I mean, there's definitely this category. I mean, I absolutely was in it. I mean, Clay Aiken, oh, <laughs> tell that to 12-year-old me. She would not believe he's not straight. <laughs> oh, my God. Lance Bass never gave away that he was gay at any... What? No, I mean, you know. I'm... Okay. Some of them are objectively, I think, pretty good looking, you know, and, and sensitive to your needs. Great to go shopping with. Look, all I'm saying is they could identify as however they'd like, but there needs to be an identification specifically for straight little girls who just fall in love with uh, gay and or bi guys and are utterly not convinced, no matter what you tell them, <laughs> that Aaron Carter... <laughs> He probably I, has not come out. I'm kidding. <laughs> I mean, I think it, it makes sense, right? Um, I have some friends who have conducted research on, you know, sort of the affinity that heterosexual women and gay men have and, and the way that they get along well and share really good mating advice. And there's often this really powerful emotional connection between them. Uh, and so it makes sense that, you know, some people might blur those lines and think that there could be an attraction there in part because we tend to be turned on by taboos and the things that we're told we can't have, right? And so the, if we feel even the slightest bit of attraction and then we perceive this obstacle to acting on that attraction, that just makes us want it even more. So Ooh, it, it kind of makes yeah. sense from that taboo perspective. It's hard to think of Clay Aiken as taboo, but that, you know, <laughs> he's precious, but I just, I never, I don't know. I mean, Rick, Ricky Martin, I mean, Menudo when I was growing up was the thing. And so Ricky Martin was the guy and uh, yeah, it, it took a while to figure it out, but I was like, God, his eyebrows are so perfect. So fantastic. <laughs> I'm like, oh, uh, hmm, okay. There's a kinship. It is having perfect eyebrows. <laughs> eyebrows are a defining they can really make or break a relationship, really. I've seen it happen. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of which, you do have very strong and nice eyebrows, Justin. I want to point that out to the listeners at home. You might not, I, I strongly suggest you Google him to see these very nice, good eyebrows. Okay, so that said, your facial hair, it is fantastic. We've been talking about it. We have. Your ears and your facial hair must be burning. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's ever mentioned this to you, but if you ever, okay, let me put it this way. 
if hypothetically there was ever an opportunity, I could absolutely see Tommy Pistol playing you in a porn parody. <laughs> or these are some high compliments. Yeah. And I'll take them all. Keep going. I love Tommy. Or you having your own HGTV show on how to renovate homes. One of the two. <laughs> hey, I'm I'm happy either way. <laughs> Look, all I'm saying is I could absolutely believe that you would give me a fantastic brand new renovated kitchen and not give me any of that distressed crap that's I'm not really into. I can yes. see it. And fix your plumbing. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm a man of all trades. What can I say? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> A jack off of all trades. <laughs> so that said, you did something really interesting. Uh, so one of your books uh, actually focused on, I believe you did the most comprehensive survey of American sexual fantasies ever undertaken. It was a two-year study that involved over 4,000 Americans. So tell me a little bit more about this. What did you learn? What are people into? Yeah, so what I wanted to do with this research was to answer a lot of questions about sexual fantasies that had never previously been explored. And one of the big ones was, what's the connection between fantasy and reality? So how many people actually want to act on their fantasies? How many of them have shared it with a partner? How many of them have actually done it? And what were their experiences like if they did it? And there really hasn't been any research that's explored not just fantasy content, but what that connection between fantasy and reality is. And one of the other big things I wanted to look at was what do our fantasies say about us? How do they connect to our personalities and our sexual histories? And I just had so many questions that I wanted to answer that I decided to write a whole book about this study. So I found a lot of things. Um, I'll try and give you the, the short version. So one is what is it that we fantasize about? And I found that there were really seven main themes that emerged in people's fantasies. But for the sake of brevity, I'll just condense it to the three big ones that almost everybody had. These were multi-partner sex. So having sex with more than one other person at the same time. Threesomes, foursomes, even more sums. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and threesomes were definitely the most common form. So I asked people to sum up their favorite fantasy of all time in just one word. And then I made a word cloud of all of these one-word fantasy descriptions. And the first time I made this word cloud, literally all it said was threesome because so many people said it that the <laughs> word was so big and every other word was so small, you couldn't read anything else. So, That's you know, so I think funny. that that really speaks to how threesomes and group sex are this very popular and pervasive sexual interest. One of the other big categories was BDSM, the power, control, and rough sex. And this takes a lot of different forms, varies from one person to the next. Some people are more mild, others are more wild. But it's basically just playing with power differentials and sometimes mixing pleasure and pain. And then the other big category was what I called novelty, adventure, and variety, where people are just going out of their their beds and trying new and different things. So that could be a new position, having sex in a new setting, incorporating some toys or other novelties into sex. So those were really the three big things that almost everybody, male, female, non-binary, across sexual orientations, almost everybody had fantasized about these things before. So what did you find out? I'm curious because, okay, so for example, like on the concept of BDSM, there is this huge stereotype, and I have no idea how true it is, where there is this stereotype of if you're someone who's very control-oriented with your schedule and life and kind of an A-type personality, you want to give up control in the bedroom and kind of vice versa. Is there any truth to that? 
So that's interesting. And it's one of the things that I looked at in my research. And surprisingly, I didn't really find any support for it. Mm -hmm. Um, So it, it didn't really seem to be the case that in their fantasies, people were trying to escape the power that they have in real life. What I found was that fantasies about submission and giving up power just across the board were were really popular and common across gender and across sexual orientation. And so I think we think of the cultural stereotype of men as as being powerful and dominant and being the initiators of sex and, and so forth. But men have a hell of a lot of fantasies about giving up power and control. And it was interesting when I looked at, you know, power and control through a gendered lens and I, I asked people, how often do you initiate sex in reality versus how often do you fantasize about initiating sex? If you look at heterosexual men and women, heterosexual women fantasize about initiating sex more than they really do. Heterosexual men fantasize about their partner initiating sex more than they currently do, right? So there's this disconnect there where men don't want to be the initiators. Women do want to be the initiators and we need to work on that. Why don't they act on it? Yeah, I, I was curious. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, you said that you were looking at whether or not the fantasies were being acted on. Did you find of those three that you just discussed? I mean, obviously, I think the one that's the most you have to actually do more work is the threesome thing, where you actually like, yeah, I gotta find somebody, gotta make sure they're okay. It's let's you know, we're BDSM. It's like here, a pair of pantyhose. I'll just tie you up real quick, or oh, let's have sex on the kitchen table. It's not so much work, but were any of those three, they were acting on more than the others or did they give any reason why or why not? So generally speaking, I found that if you look at people's favorite fantasy of all time, no matter what it is, about 80% of people are saying they want to act on it. So for most people, their favorite fantasy is a desire, but only about one in five people have ever acted on their favorite Mm -hmm. fantasy. And the rates of acting on it vary a little bit depending on the type of fantasy, but also the outcomes that people experience vary depending on type of fantasy as well. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting was that threesomes and group sex, while they were the most popular sexual fantasy, were actually the fantasy that was least likely to turn out well when people acted on it. (laughs) Right? So They're exhausting. Let's be honest. (laughs) Right. I mean, and sometimes... I need to tap out. How many balls can I juggle? Exactly. There's a lot of balls in the air sometimes or a lot of clips. But yes, it's who is supposed to do what with whom (laughs) and when? Like, what's the script for a threesome? Most people don't really know how that works. We need a spreadsheet. <laughs> Honestly, more people need either spreadsheets, binders, or, you know, pull out a whiteboard, get some dry erase markers. A whiteboard is what I'm talking about. I mean, like, I want, I want, you know what we should do? We should storyboard the group with the group, group sex for the storyboard artists out there. Come on, let's get together. <laughs> right? Look, I get advertisements all day about, hey, here's how you could use a cartoon or like a stick figure model to promote your business. How about we have one of those to use of, hey, here's a stick figure who could tell you how to manage your group sex. Well, so there there's some other complexities here uh, that are important to mention. Another is that when I look at the way people write out their threesome fantasies and they're starting to describe the narrative, most people want to be the center of attention. Well, you can't have three people all be the center of attention at the same time, right? So there's also this interesting balancing act that happens. And then also, if you're looking at, say, a couple and they're bringing a third person in, you have the issue of, can they agree on who that third person's going to be? Can they even agree on the gender of the third person? And then when people actually get into that situation, sometimes they realize, oh, I'm 
kind of jealous because that person is showing interest in my partner or I'm being left out. And so there's all these sorts of things that people just haven't really thought about until they actually get into the situation. So is there a threesome checklist somewhere that people should subscribe and or give their email address to so they know what to check off prior to having a threesome? I'm, I'm curious. I mean, let me put it this way. There's, there are so many places where they ask you to be on an email list to get a list. I would absolutely subscribe to this checklist. So how about this? Justin, if I were to plan a threesome, hypothetically, in the future, maybe tomorrow, look, at 7 p.m., hypothetically, what should I know? What, what, would I, what would I need? Aside from a great spread of food mm-hmm. and some snacks. Some craft service. Yeah, the, the post-orgy buffet is very important. Yeah. <laughs> Sustenance. It's very, what do we need? So, so there's a few things. Um, and it kind of depends on what is the relationship between the individuals beforehand. Does everybody know each other? Because a big part of the success of threesomes and other group encounters is really what's the level of communication between everyone? And do they have... Do they feel empowered to say what they want, to ask for what they want, and to communicate their boundaries, right? So I I think a big part of the success of threesomes is making sure you have good communication beforehand and you get on the same page about what it is that you all want out of it. And that you also, you know, if you're going into one of these encounters with, say, an existing partner, that you have a safe word, right? So that if something goes past your comfort zone or suddenly you're just not feeling happy about this situation anymore, that you have a way to exit that situation without it proceeding and causing further damage to the relationship. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And if you can't communicate efficiently, ecstasy. That'll, that's a truth, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I, uh, my, well. <laughs> my, my researcher and, and scientist side has to say you always should be cautious when it comes to using any kinds of drugs or alcohol, especially when you're going into a group type of encounter because Fair. that is one easy way for things to sometimes go further than you intended yeah. them to go. So it's a fine line there. But I, I think something else that's important to keep in mind for, you know, group-based encounters is, of course, you also have to plan for safe sex and, you know, how you're going to negotiate that with all of the partners as well, because some people find it hard enough to bring up condom use with one partner, let alone two. So you need to have those conversations about safer sex practices as well. This is all, I mean, very pertinent information. I, I feel like there should be, I, maybe there already is like a, you know, a dummy's guide to threesomes, but I feel like there really should be because I, I just know that so many people go in, like you said, kind of blind without having this real discussion. A lot of couples, you know, they'll get drunk or again, like, you know, be on Molly and then all of a sudden, you know, one of them kind of almost comes to and, and, and there's a sense of jealousy or feeling left out. And, you know, like, I mean, Three's Company is called Three's Company for a reason. So come on, knock on my door. Knock on my door. <laughs> yeah, a little Jack Chipper. But I know that you've done a lot of research also about cuckolding and just like the idea of, because you said that a lot of times you found that one person, everybody kind of wanted to be the center of attention, but what about those that don't want to be the center of attention? And did you find any sort of, if there was a a trend for what those folks were like, and was it equal parts? I feel like it was more men than women that kind of wanted to be cuckold. Is that, is that the case? Ooh. And is there a reason why hypothetically? Yeah. So when we're, when we're talking about cuckolding scenarios uh, for listeners who might not be familiar, this is where somebody is watching their partner have sex with somebody else. And I do find that there's a gender difference there when people fantasize about cuckolding, where men are more likely to want to watch a partner have sex with someone else, whereas women are more likely to want to be 
be watched, right? So that's a scenario where it can kind of work out well when you have partners who agree on the roles that they want to partake in those situations. And I think cuckolding is really interesting because it, it overlaps in some ways with the BDSM fantasies because there's often a dominance submission dynamic that's involved there where the partner who's watching is taking on a submissive role. Sometimes there are masochistic elements where maybe they're humiliated in the process or maybe there's bondage, so they're tied to a chair while they're watching their partner have sex with someone. I, I found that to be a really interesting fantasy to explore. And I found that most men across sexual orientations had fantasized about watching their partner have sex with somebody else before. Uh, so this is a particularly common fantasy among men across sexualities. That's really interesting. Yeah, because I, I was reading that article because uh, you'd been a lot of work with Dan Savage yep. about, you know, homosexual men and, and how because there is a less of an emphasis of being in monogamous relationships or more monogamish in the LBGTQ community that, you know, it's a little bit more acceptable. And, and of course, with, you know, if you come from, I grew up actually going to parochial and Catholic school my whole life. So, you know, obviously this was not necessarily discussed at all <laughs> that, you know, it, it's a little bit harder for, you know, maybe straight couples to really come into that conversation or, or have, uh, what about, there seems to be a trend with men wanting two women being together. Did you see that a lot? Two your, chicks at the same time, Two dude. chicks at the same time, man. Like, oh, you're a lesbian. Let me watch you make out with your girlfriend. Um, did you see that? Or is that, do you think that is blown out of proportion? Because I feel like that's, you know, such a big stereotype uh, that men want that. Is that something that you found? It's pretty damn common. And it often overlaps with the threesome and, and group sex fantasies where it's often the case that you have a heterosexual man who in his threesome wants to see his wife or girlfriend have sex with another woman, but he's involved in it in some way or, or maybe like takes breaks and watches them together. Uh, so yeah, that is certainly a, a big part of a lot of men's fantasies. Interesting that there's truth to stereotypes. So yeah. here's <laughs> sometimes sometimes they match up with the stereotypes, sometimes they don't. Which one definitely does not match up to the stereotype? So one stereotype that is actually inconsistent with what I found in my work is this idea that sex is this emotionless experience for men and that it's all about the physical act. I actually found that for most men, there was an emotional component to most of the mm -hmm. fantasies they were having. And for men in particular, feeling desired and wanted and feeling sexually competent and having an emotional connection to their partner were really important parts of a lot of their fantasies. So it's not just about the physical acts for men. There's a big psychological component and a big component of wanting to feel wanted in their sexual encounters. What? They're not just machines with penises? No. <laughs> no. Say it ain't so. <laughs> They've got heart. They've got the feels. They're actual living, breathing people. What? Right. The scientist in me wants to know basically how did you carry out the studies? Were this, you know, were these written surveys? Were you interviewing people? Were you targeting certain areas? Is this kind of like this blind chimp? You know, how'd you uh, get your sample you know? size? Yeah. Yes. So the how final big is sample, your sample size? Yes. <laughs> My sample Very is, is 4,175 Americans. It's a they, large sample size. It is large. They were... <laughs> it's an impressive sample size. Thank you. So they were recruited from all 50 states, largely came from social media. So the demographics skew a little bit younger. And like most sex surveys, the demographics skew a little bit more liberal, a little bit less religious. But that's true of any sex research that you're going to see. Uh, however, it's very diverse age range of 18 to 87. And I have people of all 
sexual identities, gender identities, political backgrounds. Uh, so I was able to look at a lot of different things, wow. in, including how does political affiliation relate to the content of people's sexual fantasies? Ooh, yes. tell us! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go so, on. So I actually, um, I, I wrote a whole article about, I, I included some of this in the book, but I also wrote a whole article about this for Politico that blew up and uh, Colbert included it in one of his monologues. And uh, it was really funny because my mom called me and she said, honey, I think, <laughs> I think Colbert was just talking about your sex research on his show. Um, Amazing. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> my mom's a, a big supporter of my work. So I, I feel good about that. That's great. But anyway, regarding the, political fantasies, I see the Republicans and Democrats are fantasizing about somewhat different things. And with the Republicans, they fantasize a lot more about various taboo activities, in particular things like swinging, where you know, they're swapping partners or cuckolding or voyeurism, visiting a strip club, like a, a lot of these <laughs> things that would be considered taboo, Ooh. right? Yeah, Colbert talked about the strip club part and you know, <laughs> his monologue, like how sexually repressed do you have to be that your fantasy is going to a strip club? But um, anyway, <laughs> so, so they had more of these, these taboo fantasies, multi-partner type fantasies, and the thing that Democrats fantasize more about than Republicans was BDSM. Oh man, I thought it was Medicare for all. Yeah, I was going to say universal healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, we understand what our fantasy is: <laughs> having healthcare, <laughs> a living wage. It wasn't a living wage. God damn it! It wasn't having just all the benefits. It wasn't. It wasn't having a th- at least a month vacation, four week vacation. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Oh my God! Um. I, I also looked at the uh, the politicians that people fantasize about. Oh, them. wait, wait! You, the politicians people fantasize about? Yeah. Oh, oh no! I on. don't need to hear about a. <laughs> oh God! It, there's gonna be Joe Biden fan fiction, isn't there? There's Joe Biden fan fiction. There's Bernie Sanders fan fiction. Who the fuck is thinking about fucking Bernie Sanders? Well, so, so this study was conducted. Tell a me, years sorry, ago. I, I didn't have any fantasies about feeling the burn. Um, <laughs> but not uh, even tasting, just a, just a wheat. Yeah, do, do you have any guesses as to who the most fantasized about female politician is? Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton. Nancy Pelosi. Sarah Palin. Shut oh, up. Oh, Nalen Palin. Yes. Yeah. And that was true for Republicans and Democrats, right? I mean, she's a dumb hot Because you fuck, could hate so. fuck her and then you could love fuck her. <laughs> <laughs> like the GOP want to love fuck her and then the hate fucks. Wow. Okay. That makes, I mean, she's, I think, a pretty much an attractive lady. Yeah. You know, got a banging body, but. I mean, she's had wow. a couple of kids, so she's, you know, she does stuff in the sack. I mean, she has her she, kids like Trip, Chip, Skip, Jack, Trap, all of them, right? I'm sure like two out of five were actual children's names. She was married to a man named Todd for a long time, which, you know, there's that. And uh, <laughs> and like, I think like one of her kids was like abusive and oh, or no. some, something like that. She's like, a jerk kid. She had a jerk kid, and then they somehow were able to blame it on something else, like the Democrats oh, did it, of course. Oh, Bristol. She had her kid, uh, the oh. one who had the kids out of wedlock. But yes. yeah, whatever. 
Yeah. So curious question about the Sarah Palin um, fantasies. Wait, who was runner up? Oh. <laughs> uh, so uh, on the fantasies about female politicians, it was so lopsided that you had this huge number of people who said per- Sarah Palin and then a very small number who said any other female politician. So I don't remember the exact ordering because it was all like very low single digits, but there were some Hillary Clinton fantasies and I can't remember what, what some of the other ones were off the top of my head, but because this was a few years ago. Nancy Reagan. <laughs> I, I don't recall Barbara any Nancy Bush. Reagan fantasies. No Barbara Bush. It's all in a name. Yeah. <laughs> but I was curious, what were the fantasies? Did they give details about what they wanted in these fantasies or was it just the name? Sure. Yeah. So some people went into great detail about what they wanted to do. And, you know, some of the Sarah Palin fantasies involved her saying, drill, baby, drill. But, you know, so it was, they're incorporating different, <laughs> different Look, things into. <laughs> if you haven't seen Who's Nail and Palin, we watched it with Tom Arnold a long time ago. Go watch it. If you have a Sarah Palin fantasy, this will be fine. <laughs> Now, for the male politician fantasies, they were um, Barack Obama, oh, Bill yeah. Clinton, and JFK were the three names that actually topped the list. JFK, yeah, uh, I could see that. Pre or postmortem? <laughs> oh, God. Pre, uh, because it turns out I did ask about necrophilia fantasies. They were very rare. Uh, necrophilia was actually the rarest fantasy on my survey, where you have less than one What percent? Less than one who uh, say they've uh, fantasized about that. And he, and he acted on it? In my survey, I don't recall if anyone had acted on it, but I do remember one person who said it was their favorite fantasy. And they wrote out this really detailed description that involved them visiting a morgue. And there's this body on the table and they can see the ligature marks on their neck because they had died of strangulation. And he's you know touching the ligature marks. And then he starts sexually engaging with the body in different orifices and talking about the different warmth and texture sensations that he feels and the contrast of his body heats with the coldness of the the corpse it's it's uh, was the corpse male or female or was it just nondescript it was male on male okay so it was a gay necrophilia fantasy and fun fact, corpses can still ejaculate. So you're welcome. No one needed to know that, but you're welcome. I, I, uh, wow. I have also <laughs> read about spontaneous ejaculation upon death as well. Yeah. Oh, God. Okay. Wow. That's, yeah. hmm. <laughs> that's, uh, a thing. I'm going to wait. I'm going to add some something to my coffee. I'll be right back. Um, <laughs> look, all I'm saying is weekend at Bernie's, uh, had an extra layer. To- oh, my God. <laughs> Never watched that movie the same way. Again. I know. I actually, uh, years ago, I played a girl that was in love with a zombie in a web series called Sally Loves Billy. And my character was supposed to do a song about loving, or it was supposed to be an Elvish or something. It was supposed to be a rap song. It was supposed to be very out of character because she was this 1950s type character. And so because I was in love with a zombie, I, I wrote a song about fucking dead dudes because nobody wrote it for me. And so finally I was like, you know, I, I got a crowd of extras that they found on Craigslist to scream, I, I fuck dead dudes and I like it. But it includes such lines as, they call it necrophilia, I call it necrofun. Sex is the best <laughs> when death's just begun. Billy's got no pulse, but he's got my heart. So lick my balls and eat my fart. Eat my fart. Eat my fart. Wow. It was, uh, Can I get that up? Can I get no. that on iTunes? <laughs> it never was released <laughs> for obvious what? reasons. I'm shocked. Yeah, it was uh, it was it was terrifying. But yeah, no, I I remember I had a boyfriend many years that was actually writing a, a screenplay about necrophilia, and 
completely about being like being in love with a with a corpse and i was just like cool you know i mean i i try to be as open as but well so there are ways that people act out necrophilia fantasies that are consensual so for Ooh, example how? yeah some people will hire a sex worker to play dead and oh. they will put on very heavy makeup and just kind of lay there motionless, right? Oh, I've done so, that. I No one needs to pay me. <laughs> <laughs> That's just Tuesday for Alice. <laughs> well, it's a you know, potential side gig, you know, when it comes to that. I didn't realize there was demand. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we should switch topics from necrophilia. Oh, how about, um, so I know <laughs> yeah. you've written also about uh, friends with benefits. Yes. Uh, so that that was actually how I got into sex research initially. My very first study in this area was on friends with benefits because I was in graduate school at the time and a lot of my students were doing this and there weren't any studies on it. So I kind of wanted to understand what are the motivations of people going into it? Do men and women have different motivations and expectations? And then also what happens to these relationships over time? How long can people stay friends with benefits? And how many of them go on to become romantic partners versus go back to being just friends versus have no relationship whatsoever. So what, what we found in that line of research is that men and women do differ on average in terms of their motivations and expectations. So men are more likely to go into it for just sex. Women are more likely to go into it wanting to develop a relationship and have an emotional connection. And so there's this disconnect and mismatch. And what I find in a longitudinal study of Friends with Benefits, where we followed people over the course of a year to see what happened, is that communication at the beginning was really the biggest predictor of whether whether these relationships succeeded and whether people were able to stay friends with benefits or at least go back to being friends. The ones who had no relationship whatsoever just had really poor communication. And I think a big part of that is just the discrepant expectations people had going into it. Well, that makes sense. So was there a limit of how many times you bone a friend before it's either gets into relationship territory or you break it off. I mean, I, I hear 40 is a number. I'm not saying it's my number, but <laughs> it's it's technically a number. So I'd be hesitant to put a specific number on it because it really depends on the individuals involved and the way that they see sex and love and whether they see those things as going together and being intimately intertwined or if they see them as separate. So there's something in sexuality research that we call your sociosexual orientation, which is basically the fancy way of saying, do you see sex and love as going together or do you see them as separate? So people who see them as separable, they can have you know repeat casual encounters with the same person. And it doesn't mean that they want to start a relationship or that anything has to proceed to a higher level of intimacy. But for people who are at this more restricted end where they see these two things as inseparable, maybe even just once, they're starting to look at, okay, when is this going to turn into a relationship? They're hooked. Yep. Yeah. Now, do you think that it has also a lot to do with like just individual preference? Because obviously, if, you know, I have friends that have been able to to cut that line between, you know, love and sex and, and delineate and, and categorize, but then somebody just really does it for them. It just, you know, like that one person, there's like a certain spark. I mean, obviously, I, I'm, I'm not saying there's soulmates or anything like that, but do you think that just certain people have a certain chemistry that it's just hard to be friends with benefits? Absolutely. Uh, it, it very much depends on the individuals involved and then what their connection is. And sometimes you just, you never know what that connection is going to be till you physically interact with somebody. And that's this complex mix of biopsychosocial factors, right? Uh, because you have the, you know, at the biological level, 
you know, pheromones and other things where you're interacting with someone else that you can only have when you have that in-person interaction. And then you have the, you know, the way that you're feeling your emotional state in that encounter. And then you also have the environmental and contextual features. And all these things come together in this unpredictable way to influence attraction. And that's why say online dating apps where they try to match people based on similar interests are are kind of BS in a lot of ways because attraction is not just a simple matter of matching what people say they want on paper to one another. And I'm not really aware of any data that says that matching people based on interests yields better outcomes than you know people just naturally looking and finding a partner huffing each out huffing yeah. each other out man just hook line and stinker man just smell yeah. them so what justin is saying is tinder is okay to judge people based on their looks solely if you're looking to bone <laughs> Yeah, but you could you could also take it a step further and ask them to send you a smelly t-shirt because we've yes. got all those studies as well where, you know, people, they just go down the line. Is there evidence to that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They've done these studies with men and women and they have them wear a t-shirt to bed every night for a week, no perfumes or artificial scents. And then at the end, they take their shirt, they put it in plastic bags, uh, anonymize it, and then people just go down the line and sniff everything. And they report on the ones that they like the best. And um, yeah. Yeah. They found that the ones, because I, I actually did a, a video and an article about this many years ago, they found that people were finding those that were genetically more dissimilar from yes. themselves attractive, which would make them a more viable mate. So it's almost like you're able to like huff out a preferred mate. Yeah. And then they found that also women that were on oral birth control were not able to basically huff out the way as well as they could when they were not on oral birth control. Cause they were basically birth control makes you kind of fools your body into thinking that you're pregnant. And so it kind of, it, it sort of fools you. It masks your ability to huff out somebody who's completely dissimilar. So yeah, that's why they say they're, you know, who knows if this is like diehard, you got to do this, but some people will say like, you know, Hey, you should probably go off oral birth control before you settle down with somebody to just see, do you really like them? Do you really, really like the way they smell? Cause people have said they've gotten off oral contraceptives and been like, Oh, I don't like the way Steve smells. Like he's kind of gross. He smells like rotten meat and, you know, you know, Febreze. I don't know. So that doesn't sound good. Someone needs to create the sensory version of Tinder. So where you could just get a PO box and scratch and sniff, right? Have men send you or women send you different shirts or articles of clothing. You like it, you meet with them. Well, and that's why some people are hosting what are called pheromone parties, where basically everybody (laughs) sends in their stinky t-shirts and then people just go and sniff and then they they meet up. It's, It's like speed dating with smelling, you know? Now, I've met my partner via speed dating, but we didn't sniff each other out on the first time we met. Well, Be honest, Alice. Yeah. <laughs> we had five minutes. I didn't have time. <laughs> you can do a lot in five minutes. You're right. Average, average. Well, you, you probably know, Justin, the average sexual encounter is roughly about five minutes. Yeah. In, in scientific terms, we call this the intravaginal ejaculatory latency time. Uh, yeah. And it is five minutes on average for heterosexual men. I'm not aware of any studies where they've done it in gay men to see, you know, is there a difference in same-sex encounters? The data just don't exist. I would love uh-huh. to, yeah. to know if that's comparable or different. 
That is interesting. Yeah. And because I mean, I'm a primatologist specifically. I study monkeys and apes and I wrote the chapter on intromission pattern in non-human primates. And so, you know, I can, of course, I include humans in the mix, but, you know, uh, one of the longest intromission patterns or longest, you know, sex times was spider monkeys for about 20, 21 to 27 minutes, you know, um, versus our measly five minutes but so if you are a spider monkey email us info at twogirlsonmike.com this is true <laughs> they also lack a, a penis bone so like humans they don't have a dick bone no boners with bones <laughs> i'm curious uh okay so five minutes is the average uh time for males uh to come to uh fruition and for females what is it on average? Eight minutes, 10, 51? <laughs> uh, yeah, so it is, it, it's closer to 15 minutes. Um, you know, there's variability based on the studies that I've seen. Uh, so there's quite a big discrepancy, you know, where, when you say that most women, you know, take about 15 minutes to reach orgasm on average versus men, it's about five minutes. Uh, so we have to find ways to bridge that gap. And, and that's where, for example, extended foreplay comes into play when it comes to, you know, ensuring that women have orgasms or uh, incorporating sex toys or getting men to change their view of sex so that they don't see it as being over once they have an orgasm. Oh, God. So (laughs) that said, I have actually seen some evidence to show some studies that show that the average woman, when it comes to just masturbating, can get off within, I want to say approximately seven to eight minutes versus the 16, you know, when she's with hypothetically a heterosexual partner. Sure, because she's a more efficient stimulator of her own body. <laughs> we get shit done. Or if yeah. a detachable shower head can get, can, can, uh, yeah, like that could be 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I mean, depending on the water pressure. <laughs> oh yeah, you got, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm talking standard good water pressure, lukewarm, not too hot, not too cold. And, uh, you know, adjustable, adjustable is good, but yeah, no, <laughs> but it's interesting. I, and I, oh, you might know the answer to this. Cause I feel like I, I'm curious if sex toys and different types of stimulation for women to get them off. I feel personally that if I use certain outside sources that are a little bit more powerful than say, you know, having sex or the old digits that you can become desensitized. Have you found that in any of your research? That Okay, stop using a drill with an attachment dildo. Alice, don't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. I'm just saying it's a little too rough. I know you want to upgrade from the Hitachi, but it's a little too much. <laughs> so I, I do get this question a lot, such as, you know, can I become addicted to my vibrator, right? And then, you know, I won't be able to enjoy in-person stimulation anymore. And I get that this is a common concern, but I've not seen any data to back up the idea that if you're using sex toys, that that is going to ruin partnered Mm -hmm. sex for you. Uh, Certainly the way that we masturbate can inform the types of sensations we want and enjoy during partnered sex. And so it's a way of how do we translate to get more of what we want in those partnered encounters. And I think the real issue for most people, you know, it's not that they're using a vibrator or masturbating this way or that way. It's that they're not communicating with their partner about what they really want and what feels good to them in bed. And good sex is all about good communication. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I feel like that's, that's always one of those things where it's so interesting. Like you can have such a wonderful relationship with somebody or connection, and then you get to the bedroom and there's this like weird wall that you can't seem to get past, you know, and, and climb over. And I I don't know, some people just, 
again, chemistry is something that you can't really explain away. I mean, we can talk about pheromones, but even that science is still, we're still figuring stuff out. But, you know, some people just fit, you know, and I'm not, and I'm not saying like morphologically fit, but actually just fit in terms of just chemistry and, and connection and being able to just, this is what I want and somebody accepting it. And there's, there's so much shame and guilt and embarrassment that's tied up in sex. And a lot of us feel like we're abnormal and that there's something wrong with us. And one of the things that I found in my fantasy research was I asked people, what percentage of the population do you think shares your favorite fantasy? And I found that across the board, it didn't matter what their fantasy was, people underestimated how common it was. And the rarer they thought their fantasy was, the more shame, guilt, embarrassment, and anxiety they felt. And as a result, they were less likely to tell their partners about their fantasies and less likely to act on them. So they're not getting what they want because it's all tied up in this, this shame. And so I think there's so much more we need to do in American sex education in terms of helping people to expand their definition of what normal is so they can feel good about themselves and that that will empower them to have better sexual communication. Absolutely. I'm curious if you saw a trend or just men that were fantasizing about other men that were, you know, that were in heterosexual relationships that weren't able to, that's another thing that always interests me, just the idea, because there's such a taboo around being bi or pan in hetero men, there's this sort of hyper-masculinity. Are you seeing, did you see a lot of that? Were they able to act on it? Sure. And actually, they were statistically more likely to be Republican. Uh, <laughs> you know, so there, there is what? some truth Shocker. to this idea, right? Oh, that, it's sad. It's sad. Yeah. yeah. So um, I, I do see that there's actually a lot of sexual fluidity for both men and women. So for example, if I just look at exclusively heterosexual men and women, I find that about half of heterosexual women say they've had a same-sex fantasy before, and about 25% of heterosexual men have had a same-sex fantasy. So women are more likely to experience that sexual fluidity, but a heck of a lot of men experience it too. And their fantasies take a lot of different forms. But I find that for a lot of these men, they often describe their same-sex fantasy as taking place in the context of an interaction with a woman. So it's it, right. So it feels safer to them to, buffer. En- to enact their gay fantasy if there's a woman present. So it's like a threesome, but it's it's really their gay fantasy coming to life. <laughs> <laughs> She's just there to be a fly on the wall. Yeah. Let's be honest. Yeah, I've encountered that. My more conservative male friends, I've had some conversations with them that are very candid, and and you know there was some desires that I, I was regretfully heard were repressed about other men, and that's I think unfortunate. As far as sex ed goes, I mean, what would you, obviously this is what you do. Is there something you'd like to see, whether it start younger or more video? I mean, videos, not porn videos, but videos explaining like what, what this is, like, you know, even things like, you know, different parts that feel good and how it's okay. I mean, what would you like to see? Look, we're well aware the American education sex system is trash. So aside from overhauling it, what yeah, is the I, alternative or what? could you lightly recommend that we start doing, right? Yeah, I mean, one of the easy things would be to look at the state laws. And so we actually have more than 20 states right now where sex education is not even mandatory. And But even in the states where sex ed is required, only about half of them even require that sex ed be medically accurate, right? So <laughs> why don't we just start by giving people medically accurate sex education, right? That, that's a big gap in our knowledge base. Ooh. But in in terms of the content, I think we can really learn a lot from what 
people in the Netherlands are doing in terms of the way they approach sex ed. And I've actually taught study abroad courses in the Netherlands for a few years now. And I always have people who have worked on the sex education curriculum there come and talk to my students. And they have a mandatory comprehensive sex education system that literally begins in kindergarten and it advances. It's it's age appropriate, right? They're not teaching kindergartners the ins and outs of sex or they're teaching them about fetishes, you know, which is where a lot of people's minds go. Rather, they're teaching them the correct anatomical names for their body parts. And they're also teaching them basic skills for how to communicate and to say, if somebody touches them in a way that doesn't make them feel good, right? And so it advances as they get older. And in middle school and high school, they're starting to get more advanced information where they're getting practical skills. And, you know, I've seen some of the workbooks that they give students and I find them really fascinating because they actually have like little comic strips where they have two people having a sexual conversation about a really difficult issue and giving them guidance on how they might navigate it. So for example, what if, what if your partner doesn't want to use a condom, but you do? How do you manage that situation, right? We don't teach people how to do that here, but you know they're trying to build a very broad skill set. And as a result, in the Netherlands, they have the lowest rate of teen pregnancies, the lowest rate of teen abortions, the lowest rate of teen STIs in the industrialized world. So I think wow. if we just took the Dutch approach and modeled our own approach after that, we could do a heck of a lot here. But then that means we have to have uncomfortable conversations with children and teenagers. So, I mean, I don't know. That's a hard trade-off. I'd, ra- right. I'd rather they just watch Skinamax like I did. <laughs> learn, learn, learn from reading the Clan of the Cave Bear books. No, that's oh, that's awesome. And that's the thing that I I remember being um, one of my advisors in grad school. I I was over at her house, and and she is from um, New Zealand. And I remember she was with her her daughter, and and basically, you know, her daughter, you know, was like playing in the tub or something. And, and it, I remember just ha- her she her having a very candid conversation about just the anatomy. And, and she actually teaches the anthropology of sex. And, and she's very big on, you need to know that women have more than two holes. You know what I mean? Like just basic anatomy knowledge is, is completely devoid here in the United States. And that's frustrating. It's, it's, you got to start from somewhere and that might as well be it. And it doesn't, like you said, it doesn't have to be, you know, teaching five-year-olds about kinks. It's just, oh, what, what, you know, and, and, and vagina is not a bad word. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Sure, beef curtains is more fun, but come on now. Like, it's not a bad word. Look, and for the record, it's 10 holes. Uh, I'm counting the belly button. If you don't, it's nine. (laughs) (laughs) There will be a quiz afterwards. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) If you have ear piercings and gauges, uh, that counts. That's extra. That's another. Oh, goodness gracious. So, uh, Justin, you're working on some interesting research right now. Uh, I saw that on your website, you were looking for even participants for coronavirus and pandemic sex study research. Tell us more on what you're currently working on. I'm curious. I thought for sure you were going to ask me about my dick pic study when 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 that started. Wait, wait, there's a dick pic study. Stop. Go wait. Back up. Back up. <laughs> <laughs> well, what let, is let it? Me... How big is it? And are you going to send it to me without me asking? <laughs> so um, I did a study recently looking at men who send unsolicited dick pics and what are the psychological motivations behind it and, and also just kind of how many men have done it and what were their experiences oh like. So, so for example, how did women actually respond? So I, I found a few 
things in the data. One was that there was actually a correlation with self-esteem, such that men with lower self-esteem were more likely to have sent unsolicited dick pics. I also found that uh, I, I believe their attitudes toward women were related to you know whether or not they had sent an unsolicited dick pic, which makes sense. And, and a lot of men, it was more than 40% in my sample uh, of several hundred men who participated who said they had sent a, a dick pic before, and, and many of them were sent without asking for consent from the other person first. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting about the data was that a lot of the guys, in fact, a majority of the guys who sent unsolicited dick pics said that it led to the response that they wanted in terms of they ended up having sex with that person or had, you know, there, there was some type of sexual encounter that resulted. Really? Right? So the dick and, pics work. Right. I, I mean, I, I hate to say or that they, they're lying. They work. <laughs> but, yeah, but no. I, I mean, and, and my, you know, my sample here is not representative of the male population, but I think this is part of the problem in terms of why unsolicited dick pics persist is that they are working a certain percentage of the time and men are not being held accountable for them, even though these pics make a lot of women feel very uncomfortable and a lot of women perceive them as a form of sexual harassment and abuse. So we have to balance that and reconcile that with the fact that it seems that there actually are a lot of women who are still sexually engaging with men who send them these unsolicited photos. And that is part of what is perpetuating this behavior. Okay, now I want you to do a study on the women who have sex with men who uh, send unsolicited dick pics. Yeah. yeah. That needs to be the follow-up. And their self-esteem. Right. Yeah. And would they still have sex with the men if they just sent a dog pic instead? Right. <laughs> Who needs a dick pic? Uh, if you send me a dog pic, we've got a, a conversation. Dog, man. Or yeah. a dick dick. That is an adorable animal. They are very cute. Dick Van Dyke, Dick Van Patten. All the dicks. Just not Dick Cheney. Not Dick Cheney. No. That is where I draw the line. No, it's... Yeah. That's interesting. How I was just curious about that sample size. <laughs> How about the ones who send photos of Dick Cheney? I <laughs> uh, didn't have any of that in my survey, um, but this was a study of, uh, it, it was several hundred men. I don't recall the exact number off the top of my head, but I have blogged about the results from that research. So it, it, it's on okay, my sex and psychology blog if you want to, mm -hmm. yeah. And we'll definitely wow. link to that in the show notes. So uh, if yeah. you want to check out some of Justin's studies, uh, guys, just go into the show notes. We have the links right there. So yeah, that's fascinating. They continue because they work and people have some low self-esteem, so they send them out. Wow. We are, are lowering that bar, man. <laughs> um, I am curious about, if I may ask about the coronavirus yeah. research. I have, a, I have a friend that's looking at um, whether or not COVID-19, uh, he studied Ebola and he, you know, Ebola lived in sperm and can COVID-19 live in sperm? I was curious what, what your study is because... Yeah, so some of my colleagues at the Kinsey Institute and I are doing a study right now looking at basically what's happening in people's intimate lives uh, during these shutdowns and um, lockdowns. And it's a longitudinal study. So we're surveying people at three different points in time, separated by about two weeks each. And we're asking them about their sexual behaviors, what their romantic life is like, uh, have they reached out to an ex? Have exes reached out to them? You know, we're trying to get a comprehensive look at what are all the behaviors that are going on. Also, app use. You know, how many people are using apps, and are they changing their behavior on the apps now compared to, to previously? Oh man, right now is the worst time to do app dating. 
I have so many people hitting me up on the Hinge. Like I, I'm, I'm with someone now. I just never deleted Hinge, but I mean, it, it's a very new relationship. But like, I find it the most optimistic. It's a sign of great optimism that these men are like, I'm still going to try, even though I'm not allowed to see or touch you. I find that almost endearing. You know, the worst thing you could possibly say is, listen to my podcast. <laughs> yeah, I should just, oh God. But what if they do? Oh, this is how we get new listeners, Natalia. Okay, okay. At okay, least right. advertise the show. <laughs> So uh, we, we, had, we have some preliminary data, if you're curious. Oh, yes. yes. I'd like to hear. Now. So I, I think it's really interesting when you look at what's been said in the media about sex and coronavirus, and you read all these articles saying people are horny as hell right now, and we're going to have this huge baby boom and, and all these other sorts of things. And what we're seeing is that the overall trend is actually that people are having less sex and less masturbation now than they were before all of this started. What? There is a small percentage of people, it seems, where they're more sexually active, but we have a bigger increase in people who are who are just not doing it. And so I, I think that's a really important takeaway from this. The Another big one is that people are being more inventive and adventuresome with their sex lives. So we found that about one in five of our participants have made a new addition to their sex life Ooh. since the pandemic began. And one of those additions is more dick pics. Uh, so people are sending more nudes, they're sexting more, they are sharing sexual fantasies with a partner. They're just being a bit more explorative um, and, and finding ways for sex tech to help meet those needs for intimacy, connection, and sexual fulfillment that they so desperately want right now, but are having a hard time getting in person. I mean, arguably, I could see why people are having less sex. I mean, being locked in under quarantine with someone is harder than being married. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, part of this is also that people aren't putting a lot of effort in, right? They're just staying in their pajamas all day and maybe not showering as much. And, you know, you've got all of these things that might be barriers to intimacy or to seeing your partner in a, you know, sort of sexual light. And that's why I... They're doing a TikTok video. Yeah. I, <laughs> Coordinating I, a new dance move. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I could see that happening. I know that uh, China was definitely experiencing a, a boom in divorces post COVID-19. Um, and, you know, because I, I think that there will probably be a, a bit of a baby boom, but a bit of a rise in breakups and divorces, you know? Natalia, if there's anyone who's going to have a baby boom, I guarantee you they're all going to be firstborns. <laughs> yeah. If you have kids, yep. no, that's not Nobody happening. Nobody wants, yeah, I know. I All my friends, it's it's a very, I don't know, it's an interesting time because I feel like for me, I'm, I'm, I do not have kids. I am not married. And like, for me, I'm just like, God, I, you know, and I'm, you know, 41 and I'm like, I, where did my life go? I want a family. And then my friends who have families are like, kill me now. I want your life. I want to be alone in an apartment where no one bothers me. And I'm just like, I just want to be loved. And to feel love, you know, it's just this really interesting, you know, people, you want what you got, you like sex, what you want, what you don't have. And, you know, you go after that. The grass is always greener. And um, I don't know. I think that's going to be an interesting thing to come out of this is to see how people approach life from here on out. If you want to send Natalia your children and your, your sweaty shirts, email us info at twogirlswomemike.com. We are taking applications. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Just make sure you're, yeah, you're, you're well-behaved children. Yeah, and, and send your COVID test results with the t-shirt. Yes, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, living in New York City, I just, I mean, I you kind of have to assume you have it just because, 
you know, it's a responsible thing to do. So you just stay away from people. So you're only taking t-shirts from Alabama right now? Or no, because I feel like Alabama, is Alabama social distancing. There's some, some of the, a lot of the southern I, states aren't taking it seriously. There, there's so. eight or nine there's states. There's eight yeah. of them. Yeah, and they're all yeah GOP led states. Yeah, that's uh, that's terrifying. Protect but, personal you know. freedoms above uh, living. I guess I don't I know. Guess, yeah. Right. Just, thanks, Nana. You you did us proud. Time to yeah. go. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but that's really fascinating, though the study. I mean, I think. I think it'll be interesting to see how people emerge from this. And and I think you're going to see a lot of diversity in in responses, right? So yeah, there are going to be some relationships where this was a really challenging situation and that leads to breakup and divorce. But you're going to have other couples who were maybe thinking about breaking up beforehand, but maybe they've rethought their priorities in life and this is going to push them closer together or people who have reached out to an ex and rekindled a relationship that had previously ended. There's all kinds of opportunities here along with all the challenges. And, you know, it's hard to predict what what the overall trend would be, but I'm just, as a scientist, curious about all the diversity and responses because it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all pattern for everybody. So do we have a timeline on when this study is going to be released? I assume end of the year, maybe next year? Oh, no, we're going to get this out as soon as we can. So um, the first wave of data collection is already complete. And this week I am writing up results for our first publication and it should be out by the end of May, actually. Oh, great. But the longitudinal stuff, because we're still in process of collecting data, that'll be a few months out before we have that released. Nice. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I I joked that my birthday was on March 13th and I, you know, that nothing brings out the X's like a, your birthday falling in the middle of a global pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you get the birthday, you the X texting you on the birthday. And then of course, you know, like, oh, the world might end. DTF? It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> but you're very bi-coastal. So it's a little hard if, let's say, hypothetically, an X is in LA. You can't fly out. That's true. This is true. I could drive out. Um, <laughs> that has no, to be no. some good dick if you're going to drive all the way from New York to LA. That's all I'm right? saying. Um, but they could definitely send me an unsolicited dick pic, right? And <laughs> I still might have sex with them because my self-esteem is that low, Alice. You know this. And it's backed by Justin's study. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that is not why I conducted that study. But okay. <laughs> We have some uh, patrons to thank as usual. And if you're a patron, you're going to get the video version of this with all the stutters and mistakes and whatnot. Uh, so this week, we want to thank Aiden Ferenstock, Christopher Ivy Song, Rich Wendling, Christina Blenkhorn, Brian Butcher, Jim DeKiwiFruit, John Daly, Mark Romer, Dave, Elisa Holishike. Hudson Miles, Howard Lee, and many, many others. And if you want to become a patron as well, head on over to patreon.com slash twogirlsonemike or just twogirlsonemike.com and hit the support button. But uh, Justin, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can our listeners find more of you and your work? Well, thanks for having me. Uh, my website is sexandpsychology at sexandpsychology.com. You can follow my blog there where I blog about the latest sex research three times a week. I've done this for the last eight years. So there's a heck of a lot of content on there for you to explore. You can also find links to all of my social media profiles if you want to see what I'm doing when I'm not studying sex. Uh, And you can also find links to my books and and other works there as well. Fantastic. And Natalia, where can our listeners find you? Oh, gosh. Um, Crying in a puddle in Red Hook, Brooklyn. Just kidding. No, no, no. I am here uh, on Twitter. 
<laughs> with my chickens. I have backyard chickens. Uh, I am on Twitter at Natalia13Reagan. I have Instagram as well at Behold Natalia. I, I behold all sorts of weird flora and fauna in a bad David Attenborough impression uh, accent. Uh, I'm also on, uh, I've done many podcasts with Star Talk Radio doing anthropological topics. So you can find me on Star Talk, just Google Natalia Reagan. And uh, I have a website, nataliareagan.com, that has lots of videos and fun anthro stuff. So, but Justin, you're awesome. I just want to say that before we get off. Oh, you're, thank you're you. fantastic. Thank you so much. You wow. both are awesome too. This was fun. And yeah. you guys, uh, if you think we are awesome, make sure you leave a comment on iTunes if you can and or tell all your friends or become a patron because we always want to share this knowledge to you, your friends, family, or that ex that won't stop sending you dick pics. So tell them, especially them. Uh, but- Listen to our podcast. <laughs> Uh, you guys can also find the show. We are on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Instagram at TGOM Podcast. Uh, but of course, you guys can share to everybody the show, uh, twogirlswomike.com or TGOMPodcast.com. Uh, thank you again and join us next week. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>